episode of Do You Want to Hear a Story was created for adult audiences. This episode contains content that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. I'm no We interrupt this program for a special news bulletin. Police descend on a man lying shirtless on a city street in Darwin. He tries to resist as officers bring the terrifying shooting spree to an end. Stay back there, please. Stay back there. The bloody rampage began an hour earlier, but the true extent of the horror wasn't clear until late on Tuesday night. Five crime scenes, four people deceased, one injured. This is not the Darwin we know. Good evening. A Margaret River family tragedy has left seven people dead in the worst mass shooting since Port Arthur. Four of the victims were children killed in what appears to be a murder-suicide. The details are emerging in Margaret River tonight as the police investigation gathers momentum. We'll hear from our team there soon. Police found two guns on the property with the seven bodies. On a picturesque farm in the Australian countryside, among the lush fields of canola crops, there were terrible realities today, with terrible questions. Kim Hunt, her 10-year-old son Fletcher, and daughters Mia, 8, and 6-year-old Phoebe, were all shot dead on the family property. The three children were found inside the home, while Mrs Hunt's body was found on a pathway outside. Husband and father Jeff was nowhere to be seen when a family friend made the discovery yesterday. Worst massacre. At least 25 people. The standoff remains with the gunman holed up in a house with three hostages. All roads remain sealed off to the Port Arthur site tonight while police try to negotiate with the gunman. The young man has killed at least 30 people and wounded many more. Tasmania, the worst massacre in police Australia. Police have now named the mass murderer. He is 28 year old Martin Bryant. Mass shootings are defined by the Australian Institute of Criminology as those resulting in at least four deaths, excluding the perpetrator. At 5.45pm on Tuesday, June 4th, 2019, police received the first emergency call from the public. Shots had rung out near Finnish Street just outside of Darwin CBD before the perpetrator moved to other locations, including the Buffalo Club, Gardens Hill Crescent, the Palms Motel, a Coles Express, and Jolly Street in Woolner. The perpetrator, a 45-year-old man from Darwin, Australia, Benjamin Hoffman, armed with an illegally obtained 12-gauge pump-action shotgun, killed four men across multiple locations in and around Darwin CBD. Police apprehended Hoffman an hour after the first murder. Hoffman's motives remain unclear, but police believe he was searching for certain people during his rampage. Hoffman was charged with four counts of murder and the trial's been postponed until September of 2021. Hoffman's lawyer indicated that he would run a defense of mental impairment. 
Five years earlier, in September of 2014, Mother Kim and her children Fletcher, who was 10, Mia, 8 years old, and Phoebe, aged 6, were found dead on their farm in Lockhart, New South Wales. A day later, the children's father and Kim's husband Jeff Hunt's body was found in a nearby dam. A gun was found beside his body. A coronial inquest heard from a forensic psychologist from New South Wales Police. Suicide was the father's intentions, killing his wife and children because he believed it would spare them future pain. Dr. Sarah Yule said she believed Jeff Hunt loved his wife and children. She said she believed there were several indicators that Hunt was depressed in September of 2014. The court heard from the last person to see the Hunts alive, Lorraine Burke. She was employed to help the Hunt family with domestic chores after Kim Hunt sustained permanent brain injuries in a 2012 car accident, which the court heard led to significant changes in her personality. On the night Hunt is believed to have shot his wife and three children and then himself, the mood in the house was tense, Lorraine Burke told the court. Lorraine discovered the body of Kim Hunt outside the house the next day. Police later discovered the children's bodies in the house. The inquest heard a handwritten note found in the home read, I'm sorry, it's all my fault, totally mine. On May 11th, 2018, in Osmington, Western Australia, not far from the Margaret River, Peter Miles, a 61-year-old retired school teacher, committed suicide. In the hours leading up to his suicide, Peter shot dead his wife, daughter, and four grandchildren. It is said that Peter first shot his daughter Katrina and then his four grandchildren, Tay, Raylan, Eyre, and Caden, while they slept in their beds in a shed that had been converted to a second house on the property. He then turned the gun on his wife Cinder in the living room of their house before placing a triple O call to police alerting them of his crimes. Police found Peter's body on the property's veranda in his chair. Aaron Cockman, Katrina's ex-husband, and the father to Peter's four grandchildren, spoke at a press conference just 48 hours after the murders had taken place, saying that Peter had struggled for years to recover from the shock of his own son taking his life, and was recently tipped over the edge when he found out his other son was seriously ill with kidney problems. Peter was found to be on antidepressants at the time of the murders. These murders that took place in 2019, 2018, and 2014 were the worst mass shootings seen in Australia since the 1996 Port Arthur Massacre. Do you want to hear a story? Will you give a few seconds of your time? Good evening, folks. May 7th, 1967. The a bouncing boy, thanks to the doctor and staff. From all accounts, Martin had what all children needed, the care and love of a mother and a father and a stable home life. The new family lived in Lena Valley, a suburb of Hobart, Tasmania's capital. 
The first year or so passed with no real trouble for the Bryant family, but as Martin grew into a toddler, it became more and more apparent that things were not progressing as they should. Martin showed signs of slow development in both speech and his fine motor skills. He was more than capable of running and climbing, something he did so often his mother was forced to place him on the front veranda with a dog leash and a harness surrounded by toys, something many neighbours complained about. His mother said in a 2011 interview that she would often find his toys broken and that he was an annoying and different child. Enrollment at primary school only highlighted Martin's impaired development. A cycle of rejection, isolation and solitude followed. He used to walk around with his face all squinted up as if the sun was too bright, an old classmate said. He stood out as a loner at Newtown Primary in Forster Street, not by choice but simply because he was so different it would drive the others away. Efforts to make friends were often misinterpreted as aggravating, such as these silly games of creeping up and leaping out on other kids as they walked home from school. The message was clear that he did not belong. If he was caught in the chase through the laneways, Martin would cry and squeal as if he was being hurt. We'd always let him go because we felt sorry for him, another classmate would recall. Locals recalled abnormal behaviour by Martin, such as pulling the snorkel from a boy while he was diving and cutting down trees on a neighbour's property. He was described by teachers as being distant from reality and unemotional. His father had given him an air rifle on his 14th birthday. It was probably the worst decision he ever made because it was Martin's introduction to the power of firearms. His family and people close to the family now agree looking back at this point in his life, marked a change in his behaviour. Martin took to hiding in a creek bed alongside the house and firing at passing traffic. There was the well-remembered chilling story of the day he shot a parrot out of a tree, then walked up to the dead bird and fired several more slugs into its head. He was also blamed for untying boats from moorings. And it was around this time that one of his only friends, Greg, ended their friendship after Martin stuck the point of a spear gun into the top of his head. Throughout school, Martin was disruptive and sometimes violent. He suffered severe bullying by other children. After he was suspended from Newtown Primary School in 1977, a psychological assessment noted his torturing of animals. Martin returned to school the following year with improved behaviour. However, he persisted in teasing younger children. He was transferred to a special education unit at Newtown High School in 1980 where he quickly declined both academically and behaviourally throughout his remaining school years. Martin then left school at age 16 in 1983. His parents took him to be assessed by psychiatrist Dr. Eric Cunningham Dax so that he could be placed on a disability pension. Dr. Dax said Martin would be unemployable as he would upset and annoy people to the extent that he would always be in trouble. He recommended that Martin receive the disability pension. Dr. Dax, who died in 2008, basically predicted the future in his notes after meeting Martin. His surviving case notes state, He cannot read or write. He does a bit of gardening and watches TV. It's only his parents' efforts that prevent further deterioration. Could be schizophrenic, and parents face a bleak future with him. The next three years pass with no real incident. Thanks to Martin's father, Maurice, who kept an extremely close eye on Martin following his departure from school. And since leaving school and under the watchful eye of his father, Martin started a small lawnmowing business. It was in 1987, when he was 19, that he met a new customer, Helen Elizabeth Harvey. 
Noticing the overgrown yard in front of her mansion, Martin took it upon himself to knock on the door and offer his services. Helen agreed she probably did have some work to get done, and their friendship begun. Helen was the granddaughter of David Harvey, the general manager to George Adams, who had created the Tattersall's gambling empire. By the time Martin met Helen, her and her mother had basically become recluses in their mansion in Newtown. And while most of the town knew Helen to be somewhat eccentric, most said that she was harmless. Martin became a regular visitor to Helen's neglected mansion in Newtown and assisted with tasks such as feeding the 14 dogs living inside the house. They basically had complete run of the downstairs, while Helen and her mother lived upstairs. Also looking after the 40 cats that lived inside her garage. Martin would later look back on the friendship with Helen and tell psychiatrists that she was his only real friend. It was nothing sexual, but he felt that she was able to look past what others could not. And as their friendship developed and Martin's visits became less and less about attending to the yard and more and more about companionship, Helen's old companion, her mother, was long forgotten about. During this time, she was somehow downgraded from upstairs living to permanent residence in the kitchen, downstairs with the dogs. In June of 1990, someone reported Helen to the health authorities, and medics found both Helen and her mother in need of urgent hospital treatment. Hilza Harvey, Helen's mother, never returned to the mansion. She died several weeks later at the age of 79. The RSPCA took away most of their animals, and after health authorities took Hilza, and the animals were gone, a clean-up order was issued on the house. Maurice, Martin's father still very much keeping an eye on his son, took it upon himself to take long service leave and act as job supervisor, overseeing the three-month job of scraping back the filth. Even with his flourishing friendship with Helen and a steady relationship with his parents, Martin's behaviours continued to worsen as he grew older. Pranks were no longer what people needed to worry about. Martin had progressed to fully-fledged threats of violence, and unfortunately those close to him were too preoccupied with keeping him safe and missed the signs. Only due to him wanting to continue to receive the disability pension was he ordered to go through a psychiatric assessment. The note left on his file, Father protects him from any occasion which might upset him as he continually threatens violence. Martin tells me he would like to go around shooting people. It would be unsafe to allow Martin out of his parents' control. Fearing what would come the day Maurice was no longer here, in November of 1991, he updated his will, leaving behind the house to his wife, Carlene, and in the event of her death, it would be split between Martin and his younger sister. But also recognising that Martin would need the extra help, he willed his superannuation to Martin approximately $250,000. Maurice discussed this with Helen, and three weeks later she did the same thing. Cars, properties, livestock, and her Tattersall's income leaving everything to her dear friend, Martin Bryant. At this point in time, Martin had moved in with Helen, but not into the mansion. Helen had recently purchased a new property for the two to settle in, a 29-hectare property in between Hobart and Port Arthur, somewhere they could have as many animals as they wanted. Martin and Helen settled into a life on the large property, and many would report that Martin was never seen without his air rifle slung over his shoulder, often taking shots at tourists who would stop at the Apple store on the highway by the property. If they weren't already, the two had quickly become the odd couple that others were actively trying to avoid. More often than not, they were spotted heading into town in one of the 50-odd cars Helen had purchased, 
with the back seats filled with animals. Cats and dogs were non-negotiable for the pair's outings, but it also wasn't uncommon for locals to see one of the cars parked in town with a miniature pony in the back seat. Martin's self-control had continued to decline. The two had had multiple close calls on their trips from the property to town because Martin was known to grab the wheel in a childlike manner and try and swerve the car. One too many times for Helen, in October of 1992, on a trip into town, loaded up with three dogs in the back seat, the car did crash, killing Helen and two of the dogs. Martin was found by police in the passenger seat, barely alive with serious neck injuries. He later told police the crash happened because Helen had become distracted by one of the dogs in the back seat. Following Helen's death, Martin moved back into the family home. Under the watchful eye of his father, he began trying to fill the void of Helen by creating new friendships, often with children, sometimes as young as nine. But even the local kids knew that there was something off about Martin and that he was someone that they should stay away from. In the weeks after Helen's death, Maurice, heavied with the responsibility of his son, went and sought help from his GP, telling him that he was struggling with constant anxiety, depression and sadness. His GP prescribed him antidepressants. Maurice began to make plans in secret, transferring all the joint accounts into his wife Carlene's name and taking his name off all of the utilities. At the same time, he knew that his son's inheritance from Helen would be quickly squandered away if left to Martin. And under a court order of the Mental Health Act, Maurice had Martin's inheritance controlled and it was to be managed independently. Martin would still receive his money, but it would now be doled out monthly rather than one large sum. On Friday, August 13, 1993, at 7.30pm, Carlene received a call. It was her husband in Port Arthur. He had called to tell her that he loved her. He had also called his daughter that night in Queensland and told her the same. He did not call Martin. Carlene later said, Over all the years, when any of us would travel to Port Arthur, we would always telephone and say that we had arrived safely. The next morning, Carleen found the note on the front door. Call the police. It took 20 officers and two days, but they found Maurice's body in a dam, weighed down almost three metres deep. Martin's guardian angel was now gone. The years following both Helen and his father's death left Martin directionless. He sold the farm that Helen and he had lived on and he would often be sighted in town dressed in over-the-top suits and hats, telling anyone that would listen how he had important business and a high-powered job. This was obviously not the case. He became more adventurous. Flush with cash now, he began leaving Tasmania. During the years, he would often venture off to Melbourne and Sydney and Perth, and sometimes as far as Thailand, London, Tokyo, Los Angeles, and New Zealand. In late 1995, Martin became suicidal, after deciding that he'd had enough. He stated, I just felt more people were against me. When I tried to be friendly toward them, they just walked away. Although he had previously been little more than a social drinker, Martin's alcohol consumption increased. It had especially escalated in the six months prior to the Port Arthur massacre. His average daily consumption was estimated at half a bottle of Sambuca, a bottle of Bailey's Irish cream, supplemented with port wine, and other sweet alcoholic drinks. According to Martin, he thought the plan for Port Arthur may have first occurred to him four to 12 weeks before the event. 
But first, a scene of horror and carnage in the Tasmanian town of Port Arthur tonight, where as many as 25 people have been shot dead in Australia's worst massacre. At least 15 people are wounded, and the gunman who's still holding police at bay is thought to be holding at least one person hostage. Most of the victims are reported to be tourists visiting the historic penal colony at Port Arthur. Helicopters began ferrying the injured to Hobart from Port Arthur after a gunman opened fire there this afternoon. We've had a gunman run amok on the Port Arthur historic site. Uh, that's 85 k's uh, from Hobart. It happened mid-afternoon. There are at least uh, 12 confirmed dead, if not 22. There's a further 15 injured. At the moment, we have a hostage and siege situation which we're attempting to contain the control. The convict ruins are a favourite with interstate and overseas tourists. It's understood those visitors have made up the bulk of those killed or wounded. Locals near the site cringed in fear inside their shops and homes as the gunman opened fire. Everyone's just freaked out. What do you understand he may have done? <sighs> Kill lots of people. Any idea why? No, no idea. Any idea who he was? No, no idea. Not a local, I don't think. Do you know if any tourists have been involved? Yes, there have been. Oh, it just sounds awful. It is awful. It's very, very awful. A few minutes ago, reports put the death toll at 25 dead. It's understood the gunman is a 22-year-old armed with a machine gun. What sparked the massacre isn't known at this stage. The horrific massacre at the historic penal settlement began without warning. This week marks the 25th anniversary of the Port Arthur Massacre. Australia is far from known as a country of mass shootings, but what happened on the 28th of April 1996 will forever be remembered as one of the worst lone gunman massacres of the 20th century. Usually these stories start with something like, it was just any other day, or the day began as all the others did. But Sunday the 28th of April 1996 did begin differently. Since Martin's return a few weeks earlier from one of his most recent overseas trips, he had began dating a girl, Petra Wilmont. She'd spent the previous night with him at his big square white house in North Hobart. It was 8am that Sunday and by now the couple had been up for a few hours. They'd showered and had a leisurely breakfast. Petra was leaving to go home back to her parents. She would later say it was odd that they were up so early. Martin never set an alarm, but this Sunday, he had set one for 6am. As far as she knew, there was no reason to be up that early. All Martin could say to Petra was that he had some things to do. He waved her off and said, I'll see you tomorrow. Carlene was happy Martin had found Petra. The relationship gave him stability, something he needed more than anything. She did say later though, she felt something was off about him in the weeks leading up to that Sunday. She could obviously have never imagined what that meant. Hidden in two pianos in his house, and now in the boot of his car, was an arsenal, including two sets of handcuffs, a sash cord rope, a hunting knife, and several canisters of petrol. In his sports bag, he had the AR-15 semi-automatic, an SLR military-style semi-automatic 308 caliber rifle, and a semi-automatic Daewoo 12-gauge shotgun. Police would later find another semi-automatic firearm and ammunition that Martin had left in the hallway of his house in his haste to leave. After a final swig of Sambuca, Martin leaves his home at 9.47am that Sunday. 
he travels unlicensed in his yellow Volvo. By now, his evil plan was in action. His journey is dotted with short but public stops. Stopping at a roadside news agency to purchase a cigarette lighter. Ten minutes later, he stops again to buy a bottle of tomato sauce. A further ten kilometres, he stops for a cup of coffee from a shell service station. Making note to the attendant, the coffee last time was too hot, and he wants the kettle boiled less this time. He stops again further down the road and spends $15 on petrol, talking with the owner about his plans to go surfing that day. His psychiatrist would later claim that Martin had always planned to die that day with his victims. They claimed that the stops was Martin putting off his own demise, potentially hoping that someone or something would give him a reason to turn around and go home. So they claim. April 28th had been literally circled on his calendar for so long. He claimed that there was no reason he chose that day. He did say to his lawyers, though, it seemed like a nice day. An unbelievably cold and cruel remark. But he'd made that choice before returning home, before Petra. Again, his psychiatrist claimed he now had a reason to live. If only that had been enough. Martin Bryant's first victims, David and Nolene Martin, they owned the bed and breakfast guest house called Seascape. The Martins had bought the bed and breakfast that Bryant's father had wanted to buy, and his father had complained to him on numerous occasions of the damage done to the Bryant family because of that purchase. It was said that Bryant believes the Martins had deliberately bought the property to hurt his family, and he blamed the Martins for the depression that led to his father's death. He fatally shot the Martins in the guest house before travelling to the Port Arthur site. At around 1pm that Sunday, Bryant paid the entry fee for the site and proceeded to park near the Broad Arrow Cafe near the water's edge. The site security manager told him to park with the other cars because that area was reserved for camper vans and the car park was busy that day. Bryant moved his car to the other area and sat in the car for a few minutes. He then moved the car back near the water outside the cafe. In the busy tourist-filled Broad Arrow Cafe, Brian ordered and ate quickly, and after returning his trade to the server, he placed his sports bag on an empty table. He pulled out the AR-15. He said nothing, and he began to fire, quickly killing three people, a couple and another woman. Her boyfriend had a bullet graze his head. It all happened so quickly, people dropped to the ground hiding on the tables. Bryant targeted his victims directly and continued to pull the trigger. Stray bullets also hit and killed people in the Broad Arrow Cafe that day. He spun around the cafe and continued to fire. People outside the cafe approached hearing the gunfire not knowing what was happening. They quickly saw Bryant's destruction. Mother and fathers tried to shield their children from Bryant. Husbands tried to protect their wives. Bryant shot and killed people as close as two metres away from him in the head. That Sunday in the Broad Arrow Cafe, Martin Bryant killed 12 people and injured 10 others, men, women and children. He shot and killed a mother as she lay on top of her daughter trying to shield her from the bullets. He then killed her daughter. He blocked the exit to prevent escape. It was all over in just 15 seconds, 17 shots. He moved through the cafe towards the gift shop. Many took this time to hide under tables and shop displays. He shot and killed two women working in the gift shop. Others tried to escape while his back was turned. 
He heard them running, he turned, and he killed them. Magazine empty, he returned to the cafe, to his sports bag. He re-entered the gift shop with a fresh magazine and continued to fire. Again, in a matter of seconds, he'd killed a further eight men, women and children, wounding two others. He left the cafe to find people scrambling, pointing his gun at people running away some as far as a hundred plus meters, hunting people in and around the bus coaches parked out front of the cafe. Bryant murdered a further six people in the car park before going back to his yellow Volvo. In just minutes from the first shot, Martin Bryant had killed 26 people, injuring a further 18. Witnesses say as he left in his Volvo, he was sounding the horn and waving to them. He drove along Jetty Road towards the toll booth. People were still running away from the cafe. A mother and her daughters were running down the road, half a kilometre or so from the cafe now. Bryant pulled up beside them, got out of the car, demanded the mother get on her knees. She did. He shot her in the head. He killed her daughters. He pulled up to the toll booth, blocking in a BMW. An argument broke out between him and one of the passengers. He shot and killed the passenger and then the remaining two in the car. He removed the last two from the car. He transferred his bag from the Volvo to the BMW. 33 dead, 19 injured. Driving the BMW, he cut off a Toyota Corolla and Bryant flung out of the car, the rifle in his hand. He tried to pull the driver's girlfriend from the car. The driver emerged and approached Bryant. Bryant pushed him back and directed him into the open boot of the BMW, locking him inside. He planned to steal the Corolla, but he couldn't climb over the passenger into the driver's seat. He killed the passenger and left in the BMW. 34 dead. Police were quick to arrive on the latest scene and they began pursuit of Bryant. Bryant drove back to the Seascape bed and breakfast, hostage in the boot of the car. On the road to the B&B, he encountered two more cars filled with people, taking shots at both cars, injuring them, but not killing them. By 2pm that Sunday, Bryant had his hostage handcuffed to the stair rail in the seascape. He had set the BMW on fire. 34 people were victims of his massacre. Bryant locked himself inside the seascape, and the siege lasted all night. He taunted police yelling to them, come and get me. The following morning on the 29th of April 1996, a fire broke out in the guest house of the seascape, lit by Bryant. Police believing that the hostage was already dead, waited for the fire to bring Bryant out. He eventually ran out of the house, clothes on fire. His hostage had been shot. Arrested, Bryant was held in the Royal Hobart Hospital under heavy police guard while awaiting trial, recovering from burns to his back. Initially, Bryant pleaded not guilty to the 35 murders and did not provide a confession. He later changed his plea to guilty for a court hearing on the 19th of November 1996, where he was found guilty on all charges. The judge then ordered that all evidence for this case be sealed. On the 22nd of November, Bryant was sentenced to 35 sentences of life imprisonment for each count of murder and sentenced to 25 years for the remaining 36 charges on five other offences, 20 attempted murders, three counts of infliction of grievous bodily harm, the infliction of wounds upon a further eight persons, four counts of aggravated assault, and one count of unlawfully setting a fire to property. Carly and Bryant spoke about her son to 60 Minutes. She was asked what her dead husband Maurice 
would have thought of the Port Arthur murders of which her son was convicted if he was still alive. Well, I don't think it would have happened, she answered. His sentences are being served concurrently in Hobart's Ridston Prison, where he remains in solitary confinement. He's not permitted any visitors other than his immediate family. Parole will never be an option for Martin Bryant. The Prime Minister John Howard tonight detailed sweeping plans to reform Australia's national gun laws, which could mean the introduction of a one-off tax to buy back illegal weapons. In the wake of Port Arthur, Mr Howard has also promised to consider new restrictions on violent videos and computer games. Prime Minister John Howard revealed his plans for strict new gun laws in the federal parliament late today. We need to achieve a total prohibition on the ownership, possession, sale and importation of all automatic and semi-automatic weapons. He wants a six-month amnesty during which gun owners will be compensated for selling their weapons back to the government. But it would be costly and later Mr Howard revealed it could mean a special one-off levy. I don't know at the end of the day how much it's going to cost, but, but if, if necessary, yes. If gun owners fail to comply, he says there will be tough penalties, including imprisonment. He'll also push for a national registry, tougher guidelines for the issuing of gun licences and an education program. He acknowledged the laws would inconvenience farmers and tonight the Western Australian government was still arguing the need for some semi-automatic weapons. I would hope that John Howard will also be going to this conference without a totally set in concrete committed position. The debate since Port Arthur has also widened to the treatment of mental health patients. Raised legitimate questions about contemporary attitudes towards the treatment of mental health problems. I must say that I think uh, deinstitutionalisation de has become a bit faddish really. Prime Minister John Howard has gone even further announcing a ministerial inquiry into new restrictions for violence on television videos and computer games. For example, this movie is about a murderous doll, Chucky, a favourite of Martin Bryant. And along with the other factors, uh, uh, it does uh, very often turn people. And now, folks, it's time to see. Thanks again for dropping in. We hope you'll make this a weekly visit. We bring the final home. You've enjoyed the evening as much as we've enjoyed having you here. Carefully and come back again soon. Good night. Good night now.